I had to find out that people who wanted to do development, uh, personal development courses in the weekend, and he wanted to do work-related courses like social media courses during the week. Because during the week, they would have to work on social media courses. They could tell their to their... Yeah, it's uh, an added value to the provider. Hey, this is added value for my job. So the companies would allow them to follow that course during their working hours. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Convos, episode 67. Jean-Luc, how are you? It sounds much better when you do the intro, though. I really, I really think so. Comes with practice, I think, with the... Yeah, I do, I do, I do think so. Yeah, I I think you should open every time. I think that's that's the best, the best idea. I'll introduce the guests or the topics at end. So, but I'm doing okay. How about yourself? All right, all right. Uh, that's good to hear. It's been a while since we had any tea time. I actually had tea after a long while this morning and last night because I had a bad headache and it kind of helped. So maybe I should do that more often, but I am fresh again, ready to go. Uh, so right for tomorrow. after the headache from last night, I, I think I should be okay for tomorrow. <laughs> so in today's tea time, we're actually going to do something interesting. We're going to talk about, I think, what did we put on the announcement? Entrepreneurial sessions. Maybe, entrepreneurial yeah. Sessions, yeah. Maybe, maybe this could become a segment in its own, like every now and again. Oh, uh, yes, definitely. Yeah. So so to, to kind of explain what we're going to talk about today is that we're going to talk about entrepreneurship. We're going to give some tips, some ideas. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's fun. I did a session this weekend with with Raila with the Rotary Leadership Awards, and I didn't really deeply dive into entrepreneurship, more the mindset part behind it. And today we're gonna do both. We're gonna talk about the entrepreneurial mindset, but also talk a little bit about Ikigai, which I think we both uh, strongly agree is really important to start off with before you actually start your venture. And I think one thing that we're definitely both going to talk about is an MVP, a minimal viable product, because I think for a lot of starting entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, especially, I think it's one of the least, it's it's the most, one of the most underrated aspects of, of running a business. So I think those two topics will, will definitely come to light. And then uh, we're going to switch it around. Is there a certain starting point you want to start out from when, when you think about entrepreneurship what do we, what what's for you what's entrepreneurship yeah I, I think the first thing we need to define i think it's the difference between entrepreneur like entrepreneur your tendencies so being an entrepreneur and running a business because there's there's a fine line between that and i don't think they're they always have to be am i saying it right mutually exclusive so yeah uh, asking you, entrepreneurship is basically, I think Jake, I, I remember last year, Jake said it, the, the, the will to, you know, undertake something to execute an idea. And it doesn't necessarily have to be running your own business because you can be an entrepreneur within an existing business. Usually they call those entrepreneurs, but entrepreneur is basically 
taking the initiative and executing an idea in short, that that would be my short definition if someone would ask me. But obviously there's more uh, bells and whistles that come with it. But simplified, I, I oh. narrow it down to that. Okay, so so let's let's take the the Google definition. Entrepreneurship is the ability and readiness to develop, organize, and run a business enterprise, along with any of its uncertainties, in order to make a profit. The most prominent example of entrepreneurship is starting a, a new business. So, kind of connects with what you are saying, and then the question always becomes because you already mentioned a little bit about entrepreneurship, saying like you can you can have entrepreneurial tendencies within a business. And it immediately brings me to actually one of the questions that Gary Vaynerchuk always slams down is saying like, as long as you, as long as somebody pays your salary, as in you are working for somebody that pays your salary, you're not an entrepreneur. You only truly become an entrepreneur when you or your business has to provide that salary for you. So there's nobody above you that if something goes wrong or at the end of the month, you get your salary from somebody else. That's, that's how he, in, 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 I'm paraphrasing here, but that's how he defined it. Yeah, I, and, I remember that thing. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's a fairly harsh one. I heard that first time when I still was getting a salary and I was like, wait a minute, are you saying I'm not an entrepreneur? And basically, yeah. If, if I look back at it, at that point, I had entrepreneurial tendencies. I wasn't a true entrepreneur. But I also want to talk a little bit about running a business, it can extend to entrepreneurship, because there are different reasons for starting a business. It's, it's not necessarily like some people want to build a business and really build a company with 50 employees, 500 employees, and other people just want to run a business by themselves and just have one employee themselves and that's it. They don't want to continuously expand and are both considered entrepreneurs, yes or no? I would say yes, based on your definition of, based on Google's definition, because it involves, I think that the, the factor Gary Vaynerchuk was considering in that part was the aspect of risk. When you still get a salary, that aspect of risk is minimized to a certain degree. You are sure by the end of the month, you, uh, you know, have a paycheck at the end to make to uh, buy your groceries, etc. And when you eliminate that from the equation, truly going to the definition, yeah, your payment should come from a business or an activity that you employ, then that is a risk factor that you need to consider. And taking that risk is things entrepreneurs explore. So. Being running a 200 person business uh, with all the risks that involve, yes, that is an entrepreneur if you execute an idea and provide value and generate a profit. If you run it by yourself, an individual, you still have that risk factor that you uh, still need to you know, run a profit and provide for yourself and your uh, community. But in the end, there is that risk factor. Freelancers, independent contractors are so-called I would consider them entrepreneurs. It, it doesn't necessarily mean they need to build that business. Obviously, you can scale that business to a certain degree by hiring new employees, etc. But if you don't want that, I want the dis discount that you're not an entrepreneur. At least that's how I see it. Interesting. Interesting. Quickly going to do a shout out to Gilly and also to Rajiv. My man, I saw a picture today with Gary Vaynerchuk. That was awesome. That was really awesome. So we're really looking forward to hearing stories on VCon. 
Always. Yeah, we need some debriefs. Yeah, when Gary is actually coming to share that. So really, really shout, big shout out to you as well. So when you decide to run a business, that's something, that's also something that a lot of people are like, when do you decide to say like, hey, I'm going to run a business and I'm actually going to make the job business. So there are two schools of thought, of, of thought in this. There's a school of thought that's saying like, listen, start off with your business as a side business, work your regular day job. Start with your side business and only when your side business is big enough to create your own salary, that's when you make the jump. And others are saying like, no, if, you, if you're doing that, you're actually never gonna experience the risk. <laughs> no, no, but you're, you're never gonna fulfill the full potential of, of what your business, your side also could be because you're keeping it as a side also. So how, how do you feel about that? It Depends on person to person. Obviously, having that income helps stabilize you for the time you're setting up. So in the case that you make the jump completely, I would say from, you know, okay, I'm going to stop my uh, main job to fully focus on this passion of mine, this, this, pro that's this side project. You, you still need a way to survive like six months to a year, I'd say, given that you're not guaranteed a short-term income with that project, right? So that's why I think I hear many people say, you know, stay with, with your main business so you have general income, especially if you don't have a partner or, you know, someone else to provide living expenses, uh, to cover the living expenses, because that, that's still necessary. On the other hand, if you've built up that savings, you can invest in yourself, then yeah, go, go experiment. Worst comes to worst, your idea fails. You can still find another job. So that's the mentality. But, yeah, but here's idea. the thing. Okay, and maybe this is from, from my perspective, but if you jump off, like you have a, a, a good day job and you just okay. jump in a while. You have savings, but you jump in a while to start a business. My point is like, that means you don't have to actually have a product or at least you don't have clients yet. So for me, it's, it's kind of simple. If you have the clients and the clients are telling like, listen, I want you, I, I, I'm paying for this. I want more. I want a better service. I want you to scale. You should start the business. It's completely different than like, I have this idea that this is going to work and you haven't, you haven't even tried it. So that's all, always what kind of baffles me in, in the aspirational entrepreneurship part. And that's where a lot of people, they have savings. They go and say like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. They go, they run their business six months later, a year later, they're back at a day job. And that's where I'm like, hey, guys, listen, you do need to have like a product or a service already, which people are already paying for to understand. Is this same with a, it's, it's I mean, I, the exact same with a dropout I, concept. I, let, let me explain the dropout concept. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. When, people, when people talk about Mark Zuckerberg and Mel Gates being dropouts, it's like, guys, they're not they went back to school, regular right? dropouts. No, it's like <laughs> they're not regular dropouts. I mean. When you are a dropout out of Harvard, and particularly when you're a dropout because your business is running so well that you don't have time to study for exams anymore and go on to a full-scale business, or your business already received a half a million grant to scale itself, it's something completely different than dropping out because you weren't able to complete your exams because you weren't smart enough or didn't understand the exam system. And secondly, just to get it to Harvard is already a prestige on its own. So when, 
When we look at dropout Harvard's, Harvard dropouts that dropped out because their business was so successful, they had to decide between their study and the business and they decided to drop out of Harvard to run their business. And just your average college dropout, it's not the same thing. Okay, I'm going to go on a quick tangent here. We have some topics listed, but mentioning Harvard in that context specifically, you know, dropping out from Harvard or leaving your company. I think one important fact to also consider, you said uh, you need to have clients first, right? To kind of validate your idea. Maybe not yeah, clients yet, but someone to validate like a gauge interest and etc. But there's this network effect also at play depending on where you are. So if, if we're talking about a, a Harvard dropout versus a university that no one knows about, a Harvard dropout has more network work potential than that individual who finished the degree in a no-name university just because of the environment, that name association and the people you meet in that environment. Same with if you work in a prestigious company, depending on what you are kind of associated. So this comes down to the, this comes down, wait, wait, oh my God. I'm drawing a blank. Well, it's a, better, it's a pedigree entrepreneur yeah. versus a yeah. pedigree entrepreneur. And then it, it just, go, just comes yeah. like the environment you've been bred in. And bred sounds like a harsh word, but it's basically where you learn stuff, grew up in, or kind of been shaped. It could be a company, a, a school, or just a neighborhood you grew up in. That network effect kind of plays a role in developing those, not just entrepreneurial tendencies, but taking that step. Do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I know it's, it's very true, but I still think, I still think one of the things that's really underrated is already having clients, already having something like you want to have a battle test. And the reason why I want to have a battle test is, is that you're, you should know what you're getting yourself into. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is when you battle test it and it doesn't work, it brings you back to on why do you actually want to start a business? Like what's, what's the, what's the idea behind starting, starting a business? The, the flip side of that is also some people start something on the side without an intention to make a business out of it, like crafts or just, you know, it's a hobby woodworking or something and, and they, they make stuff and suddenly people see that interest starts to raise and then the business grows out of that. And then they already have something to show. How would you place that into making the jump from, hey, this is just a side passion, no intention of starting a business, but this demand is growing. In, in today's age and in, in the internet age, that can work, but there's still one, one big minor with that. If it's sort of more of like a passion project, something you love and you're actually good at, like crafts, like the, the issue always becomes like, what's the demand for it? Like when you're doing something out of passion and it's just fun and like you make 20 out of them and you sell four because family and friends are like, yeah, that's cool. I want one. And then you think like, oh, there's a big market for it. And then you kind of make it into a business and you realize the market isn't actually as big as it is, or, or you might have to change a couple of things in order to make it sell. Like when you start something from a passion, you're just going to make something that you that you enjoy. So you're going to create a product or create a service that you enjoy and People are going to buy it. Some are going to buy it because it's a good product. Others are going to buy it just to support you. But you haven't really dug in deep to who actually needs it and what they need it for. 
So when it's fully passion-based, you can't, it doesn't always happen, but you can come into a situation that you're like, wait, this is my passion. I want to monetize it more, but for some reason it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't go above a certain threshold. So you don't get the sales that you would need to make it a, a proper business. And that's where the difference between what you like to do and what's needed in the world or what makes money comes into play. And that's okay. a different dynamic. I, I think this is a good jumping or starting off point to go into this part on, you know, finding holes in the market. How do you identify those and how do you test this product market fit? Like, hey, dude, I, I like doing this, but does my community or the world need it or want it? How, how do you approach how, that? How have you approached that? I want to know how you approach that. I asked this question so, first. <laughs> okay, so so trial and error. Like uh, we iterate, when we, when we started off with Ineffable, there are a lot of iterations. There are a lot of products in 2016 that we created that we no longer do. And, and I think one of the biggest difference that, that people forget is when you start off, like you should be happy with any client. Like when you're just starting off, it's like, get as many repetitions and iterations as possible to kind of learn to know the market and learn, also learn to like what clients you want and what clients you don't want. And I mean, I, I tell, tell the story a lot about training and services. So for the past five years, whenever there was like uh, a cash flow deficit, or I felt like we were low on cash flow. I would start giving training and courses because our main products are monthly services, our project services, mm -hmm. reoccurring services that, that companies pay us for are their project-based services that, that companies pay us for. So education isn't really one of the cores of our business. Of course, we do have the conference. We are busy with creating other things to have the education part there, but it, it isn't like we, that it was a core part of our business. But whenever you have a, a cash flow deficit, it's like, hey, I actually have a quick way, and that was a quick way three years ago to, to boost your cash flow by saying, like, I'm going to do this course. I know there's at least 50, 200 people interested. Let's do the course and then uh, make money off of it. And here's the interesting part the, the main reason we don't do as many courses now is. The rate that I ask, like for my hourly rate has kind of been bumping up over the past years. So where I would be okay with saying like, let's have 20 people in a room and I get a hundred bucks out of it, which was okay three years ago. Our finance department looks at me and is like, are you sure you're going to do this? The amount of time we're going to spend in it, on it for a hundred bucks, you have enough work. Don't do that. So that's something I do want to go into in a bit as well, or maybe, maybe I'll save this one, but uh, there's a comment here for, for, from Rajiv, for the person who spent his savings to start the business and fails with that business, the actual entrepreneur journey started with that failure. Yeah. And I, I have to agree with this because you're basically, it, it isn't a failure. It's, it's a learning process. Even if you, you know, take that jump, may have those savings, left the job, you've learned it may be an expensive lesson. I haven't failed. I've just found, I just found 10,000 ways that don't work. Yeah. That, it, that, it, it might be an expensive lesson. Yeah. But so, it so, is To quickly elaborate on the failure. So 
we don't do the, the, the courses anymore, the quick courses. Like if we do a course now, it's really structured and I have to get it approved first. But back in 2016, I wanted to do courses and I wanted to do as many courses as possible because I didn't have a clear idea of what the market wanted. So we did courses on like all channels, a YouTube course, a Twitter course, a Facebook course, a web care course, a content course, anything which you could imagine with social media. But then we also ran personal development courses, like how to be smart with email, how to work together, how to, def yeah, how to create your own career. Those kind of courses that are more personal development like. And what happened was some of these courses were like completely empty. And why were they empty? Because I had to find out that people wanted to do development or personal development courses in the weekend. And he wanted to do work-related courses like social media courses during the week because during the week, they would have to work and social media courses, they could tell them to their... Yeah, it's uh, an added value to their provider. Hey, this is added value for my job. So the companies would allow them to follow that course during their working hours. Whereas personal development courses, they weren't allowed to just get a half a day off to follow personal development course. So the personal development courses had to be done on a Saturday. And I was planning those courses in on, on Wednesdays and people were saying like, we want to follow that course. We want to follow that course, but we can't be there on a Wednesday. So you can see it as failure, but it was just finding out how the market works. That's, that's basically the idea behind it. And coming back to how the market works, when do you say, okay, I validated this. So what's the, do you have a model threshold that you work with on? You know, this is validated. This has been invalidated. Scratch that idea. Move to the next, or is it you? You have to <laughs> feel it out, and through trial and error, you get that experience and intuition that goes with that. I I nowadays when 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 aspiring entrepreneurs or starting entrepreneurs come up to me and they want to talk, and I tell them, sell a product a hundred times, and when you've sold it a hundred times, come back to me. And and what would you say in in the case? I ask this a lot. Yeah. A hundred is a lot. But what would you say in the case of a person giving a service? Also sell the service a hundred times. I, I don't care if of those 150 times you did it for free, 30 times they paid for it, 20 times you gave a discount. It's, it's going to give you an idea of like how, how much in demand is that service. If you're able to sell something a hundred times, and even if you've done it free for 50 times, that's why you can say like, Hey, listen. A hundred times people were willing to listen to your story. So it's at least worth something. And then you have to look back and see like, are they willing to purchase again? Because if you, if you sold something a hundred times and not a single person that you sold to wants to repurchase or refer somebody to you to purchase that, then you should also think like, okay, something's not good yet. Yeah, yeah. One thing I want to touch on, you mentioned, even if it's for free, can you elaborate on that? Isn't that a false metric or I would call it when a false metric? Things, when you do things for the first time, you also want to know like, what is the threshold and why are people not buying or purchasing that product? If you do it for free and you get a hundred people and you do it paid and you get 10, you at least know like, Hey, when I do it for free, the demand is a hundred when I price for it paid instead. And then you can make the decision for yourself, like, okay, did I get those 10 people out of the, those hundred because I did it for free? 
So the free is kind of like a freemium or a lure in for people to get acquainted with your product or your service. So you need that part <laughs> because in, in the U S in, in, in Canada, parts of Europe, they play the numbers game. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. really like the marketing funnel and saying like, Hey, I'm going to reach out to 10,000 people. And those like are going to no interest or hundred. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just yeah. the funnel and yeah. It's it's kind of like this model, and then you can say like, I don't want that. I want a better system. But you can only have a better system when you have a better product. If you have a good product, you sell once or twice, and it starts from there, and you get like the the word of mouth. And if you have a really good product, believe it or not, you won't spend a lot of time advertising or promoting the product. And I think that's something that's underrated. If you constantly, constantly, constantly have to work to get new customers in, you should also look at your product. Like, why do I have to constantly get new people in and aren't my existing customers doing the work for me? Because if you have a good product, your existing customers, they will jump in and they will fight for you. And to, to double down on that, actually, before we move on to the next one. Uh, a, a few ways I can think of on how you can iterate this product of yours or, or whatever. Sometimes you don't even need to come up with something. Just look at the market, see what's high in demand, something you use maybe for yourself and see if you can replicate that product, but not just replicate, either upgrade it, make it better. Uh, what are people lacking from that product? And that could be your spin on that product and offer to the market. And you already tested demand is there. You have market validation. So make an existing product. On the other hand, you could also see, oh, this product has too many bells and whistles. Uh, I'd wish uh, I would buy it. I don't be, I need only 40% of it, of that thing. So downgrade it, make it simple so that, you know, the, the barrier to buy for people, for the regular consumers is lower because you see like uh, people only buy it for that thing. The other thing I see is either bundling or unbundling packages. When buying cameras, for example, they usually bundle these together with a lens, etc. And that's how they get you, right? Uh, you get this complete kit to get this experience. <laughs> I, I, that, I know that because that's how I started with photography, right? So that, that's a way that you can, you know, doesn't need to be something high end, but look around you what's within your environment, within your market that you could combine that would make sense that people haven't done yet, for example. And then, yeah, you, you can go bigger, smaller. So play, play with the bigger and smaller of existing ideas and iterate on that. So I it's funny that you mentioned that because ideas in general are new. And so it's, it's also, and we haven't touched upon the ideas versus uh, uh, execution for Jack, but it's, it's really, there's so many ideas in the world. You shouldn't think like, oh, I have this brilliant idea. Nobody else has thought of it. I mean, uh, like. 20 billion people in the world. Trust me, 10,000 people have thought about your idea already. And probably 5,000 are already trying it. It's just you haven't come across them. And that's also another thing I feel like we lack research when we, we start certain ventures because it has been done before. And that's, that's the interesting part. Okay. Also interesting, Nicole, thank you for joining in. It's always fun to listen in. Yeah, I think we should definitely do also an episode with Nicole as well. So Nicole, if you're in for it, do let us know. We would love to have you as a guest once as well. I just lost my question. <laughs> I, I had a tangent again, but I, I lost it from something you mentioned, but rolling on to the next segment. Okay. If so, it comes back, I'll, I'll so throw it back. I've been, I've been busy writing the rough draft of, of my book. And 
I came across a really old podcast episode, Small Passive Income by Pat Flynn with Glenn Alsop. And I think it's fascinating because it's something that I've, since I heard that episode, I've kind of incorporated. Small passive income. In. Small, smart, smart passive income. Smart, so passive, smart income. passive income. Is a, is smart passive income is a great business, their business podcast by Pat Flynn, somebody who I really look up to. And he had Glenn Alsop, who was an SEO niche marketing expert. And what, what he used to do is he used to build like these niche websites and get a lot of traffic on these niche websites. And in the beginning, like we're talking early ages here, early internet marketing ages, those websites would get a lot of traffic and that traffic would be alert a lot because you could put ads on them and you get sales from AdSense and those kinds of things. But then gradually, of course, the real money comes in when people go to your niche website and they actually purchase the products directly from you. Makes a lot more money than just advertising. Yeah. And one of the interesting uh, topics was that he spoke about passions, problems, and, and fears. So not just your passions, not just listening, listing your passions, but also listing your problems and fears. Because what I just mentioned is like, if you have passions, it's fun. You like doing it. So you're going to put it out for yourself because you like doing it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that people are interested in the product or the service. Whereas when you focus on problems and fears, you kind of bring a solution to their problems or their fears, which makes it much more interesting for them to purchase. So if I'm scared, for instance, that I won't be able to impress girls because I'm not jumping high enough to dunk a basketball on the rim and you sell me a, pro a product or a, a product that makes me jump higher, I'm able to impress people. So I purchase the product. Whereas if you, you say like, confidence. hey, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I, I, if you say like, Hey, I love jumping high, check out my product. It's like, okay, sure. You jump like jumping high, but you say like, Hey, do you want to jump higher because you want to do this? It's like, or are you, do you have the fear that you won't be able to make it to the next level because you don't have this ability? So all of a sudden, like it triggers differently. So I don't know if the jumping is a good example, but it was the first thing that came up. No, it's a, I think it's a good example. Basically, it's kind of a, I, I guess, a stereotype, but it evokes, you know, confidence and like a bro basketball culture, you know, with, with the Nikes. And this comes back to you, don't sell the features, or but sell the, the result of it, you know, feel more confident, et cetera, by purchasing this. And it's actually the, the experience afterwards, after you use that product, that image that you're selling that, yeah, people are sitting in this amazing chair, like, oh, it's buy this chair too. It's the constant, um, this constant Apple Samsung debate, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I gotta say, I haven't seen many new Samsung advertisements lately, but they, they, they have been slowly moving away from that feature-heavy type advertisement from back in the 2010s, 2012s. They, they have been. But even when, they, even when they go to the emotional side, it's still how the feature brings that emotion. Yeah. But right? the, then again, you, you got to ask yourself, is this a <laughs> Eastern culture thing? Because I, I have very little reference on how, you know, the East side, the Korea, China, perceive some of these things because you know another tangent because advertisement newspapers the the culture there if you look at 
Chinese magazines, Japanese magazines. It's filled with kanji characters. It's filled with all these characters. It's information dense. And that's how, that's what works for them. And that's a different type of consumption that we have here in the West, where it's like, oh, an image of this and showing an experience. So I think that also plays a, a role. I can't speak much of how to, how that plays out since I haven't visited Asia yet. But it's interesting to look into. It's, it's very interesting because just today, another person that I look up to, Mark Shaver. Mark Shaver just bought, brought, uh, published his, his newest book, Accumulated Advantage. He published it last year. And now it's getting a run through the whole world. So different publishers from different countries are kind of publishing the books in their respective foreign languages. And his book has been published now in Korea. And Korea didn't just change the text from English to Korean. They changed the whole cover of the book, but they also changed the name of the book. What has it been changed to? I have to, I have to quickly uh, look at it's something, but something with time. So it's, it went from cumulative advantage to, let me quickly, let me see if I can quickly pull it up. Well, that's also the thing with languages, right? Some, some things you can yeah. translate or hit differently in the local language. So there's also a nuance to that. Yeah. So they changed the, completely changed the name of the book and they also changed the layout and the colors and everything is completely different, which I thought was very, very interesting, but that actually just happened. I think he posted about it somewhere this week or actually today. So it was really interesting looking into, and that's also the next part, the the target audience, I think that's a, that's a really hard one. Like understanding, like who you're doing it for. It's also, I think the best example between passion and, 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 and market is, is my YouTube channel. Perfect example. Like I want to do things that are passionate about and people want to watch things that are entertaining and it, it doesn't always match because mm -hmm. creativity creativity, art is not always perceived in the same way as entertainment. People want entertainment. That's why social media is popular. That's why Facebook is popular. That's why TikTok is popular. It's entertainment. People want to laugh. They want to scroll to and see interesting stuff. Not necessarily like boring content, which somebody might love, but if they really are searching for it, they will find it on Google. They will find it on YouTube. But that's also a very big difference. Uh, between YouTube and why actually Facebook cannot beat YouTube is because Facebook is, has the heavy push marketing and YouTube has push marketing as well, but it's also what people search for. So, so I think in the context, okay, idea. maybe Facebook, YouTube, you know, everyone knows that if you had to scale that down in, you know, idea of, you know, in, in this case, it's about video, a video platform idea versus execution on a small scale. How would you go on? Do you have an example on that for a small business? Idea versus execution. Okay. So for instance, you want to start a, a food truck and you can have the best ideas in the world on having things that are not available in your local community and you can start off and you just do that and you're like, yeah, and I'm going to provide things that everybody always said they wanted to see from a comfortable food truck and I'm going to be the first one to do it. Whereas 
you can have somebody else who just sells from home and just has good food and people are like, we want more. And can you be open on a Saturday or we want to, to deliver to this area? So it's, it's, it's a big difference between like having like the ambition and the idea. And we spend a lot of time building a vision. But let me give you another example. My first business when I came back was in indoor marketing. So we had these panels that you could see on different locations in Suriname. And I made a complete business case out of it. I wrote the strategy for the business. And then we ended up ordering way too many displays. So even at the time that we were already going towards break even, we still had like over 50% of our displays that were not in use because our first batch, we bought way too many. Okay. So that was like oversupply, didn't test the demand. Yeah, we, we had, I, I mean, I wrote everything down strategy wise, but from yeah, uh, in theory, it should have worked. Yeah. And, and I think like it was going quite well, actually. I, I had it, I had it over my shares because I had other arrangements, but we were already at the most prominent locations in the inner city. And even at the airport, we were already having our advertisers and my business partners at the time, one of them is still in that business and it's actually has a lot more locations than what it was. But for me, that was kind of like a, a first reality check saying like, okay, I made this great strategy for a business, but in the execution, it was way more important in the first year than the actual strategy behind it. Because you have to be able to, to sell, but also to deliver what, what you sell. And if you fantasize too much about what the ideal situation is, where your business should be, and you spend not enough time on the actual operations and execution of it, it becomes this dream and you always under deliver. Would you say there's a ratio, like when starting out, say 20%, yes, have the vision, uh, a rough draft of the vision, but focus your 80% on, you know, execute, iterate, execute, iterate. And then slowly transition as, as you get more validation, that shift, like being that vision more a applying the 2080 rule. No, I'm not, I'm not even, not even looking at the rule at, at all. Like it, it, it's arbitrary. The, the percentage yeah. is completely arbitrary. The, the, the thing that I use most that I, I gain most, I'm happiest with that I got is actually a model that action coach provides. And it starts off with mastery. It goes like uh, mastery, mastery niche leverage. I think it's something like that. I might be skipping one step, but the first part is mastery. Like if you have a service, you want your service to be better than others that providing the same thing. Okay. If, or you want if to I say the first step is mastery, I, I want to challenge this a bit. If you say the first step of mastery, yeah. how do you get to that point of mastery? Do you need to get to that point of mastery first and then start a business? Well, no, not necessarily because in the end, people are willing to pay a certain price. So say I offer uh, a fruit basket and you offer a fruit basket and the, my fruit basket is just, I go into my garden, I select a couple of pieces of fruit and I put them in a fruit basket, whereas you completely clean them up. You have packaging where they are sliced and they were well prepared. You're allowed to ask twice or three times as much as I am because you already developed the skill for the packaging and also already developed the skill for slicing it up 
and making it easier for your clients because your clients, when they get home, they can eat this food straight away. Whereas my clients, they still have to clean it up and slice it up. So when I start off with my skill and I only have the skill of picking the food and putting it in the basket, I ask a price that's relevant for that specific product. Whereas you, you bring a better product because your mastery is at a higher level. Actually, your mastery is already at a niche level because you're already doing something that like 1% or 5% of all the people that provide a product actually do. Whereas I do something that everybody does as in going into tree, getting the fruit and putting it on the stand and saying like, Hey, these five fruits are for 15, 50 SRD. So I think it's, it's really, you don't have to start with it, but your price, your pricing is going to be different. People are, your clients are also going to tell you whether or not your pricing is good. If they don't tell you you're expensive, most likely you're either good or you're too low with your yeah. price, which is never a bad thing. The only thing that's bad is that you don't have enough time or you're not making enough, you're not making enough money from it. So that's also when you start considering like, Hey, I have to look at, at my price calculations, but in general, I think the first step is mastery, providing a product or a service that people actually want to purchase. And then yeah. you're going to niche, then you're going to niche it down. Then you're going to be like, Hey, now I have products. Where, where can I have the most leverage? What product can I set up that my competitors cannot set up? Let me give you a good example. SEO writing for websites for Sudanese companies. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have, like we have experts. We have people that are really good in writing SEO content, but they are doing something else. So if a company would come in here and say like, we're going to write SEO content for, for websites, it's like a big hole in the market. But the reason it's a big hole in the market is because companies are not yet willing to pay set amount for that to do. But once three or four companies are your client and everybody realizes that when they work with you, their, your, their website becomes ranked number one on all the Google searches. All of a sudden, the demand goes up, the demand goes up, your mastery goes up, and you're allowed to have more of it. And that's when the leverage comes in, then you can say like, hey, you really want, you can go somewhere else, which is a lot cheaper, and then go ahead, you can go there, but you already have the leverage that if they're not willing to pay, you don't mind because you know there are enough clients coming in already. And that's so almost from a quality perspective over quantity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get that part. So bringing this back a bit macro, would you say like in anything, basically, um, getting in early, when is getting in too early and when it's getting in early enough at the right moment, for example, what do you mean we're getting it too early. So look at this SEO example, right? But there is no set, no one's, not many people are doing it yet. Right? So basically. If a company still yeah, 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 but the, the gap you mentioned, they haven't leveraged it enough yet. So say someone comes in and leverages, does these things at a low cost and kind of takes over the market, you spread wide first, and then you use that as leverage to upgrade the quality of the service. Would that be a, an appropriate way of rephrasing that and using that as leverage at a later stage of your product or service? 
So you go low cost or free first, as you mentioned in your example, try the market with free stuff first, get a widespread. And then if you have that validation, you can later use that as leverage to offer a higher quality, higher price product or service. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, the mastery stage takes three years at least. And that's, that's the problem. People come in and they want leverage straight away. Like it's the same with people who graduate from college or from university and expect to have leverage when they're starting a job. When you start a job, you start off at the lowest point, entry point of your career. So you don't have a lot of leverage. You do have leverage in the two years, three years time when you've proven yourself. Same goes for a business. Like when you come into the market, you don't have, I mean, you could have the benefit of having a name because your parents have a good name or somebody in your family has a good track record. You could have leverage from a previous venture, like something you invested in previously and they're like, Hey, that's, that's good. We trust you. So there are ways that you can have leverage, but it's still the, the, the lowest point in your career from that perspective. And here's what I think that people underestimate is like, we're too much on the defensive. As in, we're worried, like, what if this isn't good enough? What if this, that doesn't work? But if you really do it from the heart and you're really in there to like create something that really brings benefit. When you say, yeah, when you say we're too much on the defensive, is that a targeted comment on a cultural aspect as in where we are, where we grew up, or is it? As in, you know, I think in general, I think in general, I'm not sure if it's a cultural or a geographical or a demographical issue or a generational issue, even. I just think that we're so much focused on what's wrong, blaming others for things that we are doing and not looking like in the mirror, looking at ourselves like, should we do something differently or do I want to focus on this? And that's where, that's why the, the problems and the fears are important and looking at like, what kind of products do, do, do our clients want at a certain point? And this was really hard for me in the beginning. At a certain point, I let go of what I wanted to sell to my clients. Basically our clients tell us what they want to have. And it's, it's a very big shift, but it, it works really well. Instead of you pitching to your clients, you should do this, you should do this. Whenever I do that, I still sometimes do that because the client wants me to do that. Diego, sometimes I pitch like five campaigns and the client wants to do all the five campaigns and a year later, we haven't done any of them. And other times the client comes to me last minute and says like, our board wants us to do this campaign. Can we do it? That's where we make the most money. When clients come to us and they're like, we're already going to do this. We need your help. Instead of me saying like, you know what really would be good for your company if you do this. Well, in that case, there's also a sense of urgency, right? And that's something if we were also internal approval with the campaigns that they come to us, the, the head of the company, the management or the board of the company has, yeah, it's, it's, it's already been resolved with them. There's already a budget for it. Whereas when I come with an idea, like this would really work for your company, they might not even have the budget to do it. And these are like, this is like something so simple, but then again, so confronting because you want to do, you want to give pitch ideas for your clients that they can grow from and they can become better from, but. But do they need it? Yeah. 
yeah, do they need it? Do they actually really need it? Or do they need something else, which is more in line with where they stand at that moment? Because the resources problem is the biggest problem of all for every company at the moment. Okay. So let's talk about resource for a second. Mm. When starting out, we already mentioned, yeah, you know, that, that savings, et cetera, say you have started something and you're, you're starting to get some traction. You have some market validation. How do you allocate, start allocating resources to, to get in that cash flow? Like, all right, I, I need to, you know, plan for the next six months. I need to have, you know, buy enough stuff and expand, especially if you have a team, maybe. How do you handle resources? So I think this is one of the most interesting ones. The reason why I really like this, I only had one of my questions answered by Gary Fee at, at the Ask Gary Fee show once. And this was actually a question of scaling. And it wasn't my question. It was a question of a group of ours, entrepreneurial group in which they were talking about scaling. And that raised the question for me and that D-Rock who was a guest of our show uh, a couple of months back or last month, he actually tagged me in a tweet saying like, Hey, Gary answered your question. And the question was like, when do you transition somebody from a freelancer to full-time entrepreneur? And his answer was kind of straightforward. There, there are just several cases. One case, there's a situation where you're just, that person is damn good and you just, you just want that person on your team or the amount of work is already there that it's, it's needed to, it's not enough to have that person as a, as a freelancer. I think he gave a, a couple of other examples as well. But basically you can start off with somebody as a freelancer or start off with somebody as an intern and you will immediately see if that person will be able to relieve you of some work because I, that, that's the most important thing. If you hire somebody else, it shouldn't be a situation. I've had friends, let's, let's rephrase that. I've had a friend who at a certain point was like, he was still here and he was like, I need somebody else. And he got a partner to join his firm and he was able to push off everything that was related to certain topics of the business that he felt weren't his task anymore. And then I had another friend who tried to do the same thing and three years later told me like, listen, I don't want the stress. I don't want to have the stress of having to pay somebody else's salary and not being sure whether or not the income comes in time. So I think that's first of all, a personal preference. For you as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. do you know what to scale or do you want to be a solopreneur? And then secondly, you can decide when you take somebody as a freelancer and when that person has enough work that you're actually like, it's crazy not to hire this person, uh, which is the case with one of, one of, one of my teammates. Yeah. And there's a tipping I, point. Like I was working together with him for, I think already five years and we worked together for five years. At a certain point, we kept asking him to do freelance stuff with us. And at a certain point, we were just like, wait a minute, why don't we hire him full-time? We have enough of those Job jobs, jobs. Yeah. that it's interesting enough for us to just pay him a monthly salary and give him some security as well. And he took the job. And then there's also another case of another friend of mine who I like to work with. We almost work on all the projects together, but the salary that he wants is something we cannot afford at the moment. We don't, we just don't have enough jobs to make that salary work. So he still works out with us as a freelancer and then he can just ask his regular, regular fee. So it really, it really depends on, is there enough 
uh, is the, the ask big enough? If the ask is big enough, it's an easy decision. And then still you can have a construction where the person needs a freelancer. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm just looking at the tab. We, we could go on with a much more. Uh, we can, we can do this for three, three years. Yeah, for two hours. We, we didn't even touch, touch on the, the, the more personal stuff, like the, the, the mindset part, which is also very interesting, but let's switch it over to some fun over-unders and maybe you can throw some of these in there as well. But yeah, let's close this off with some quick over-unders. Jean-Luc, you want to start us off? Yeah. Overrated, underrated. Crypto boy. Have you heard a song, by the way? Crypto boy? Yeah. No, I, I'm not sure I'm familiar with him. Okay, so today Crypto Boy was trending on Twitter because there's an artist who made a song about Crypto Boy saying like, I don't know exact lyrics. I don't care about your Crypto Boy. I don't care about one Bitcoin, something like that. And it, it went viral on TikTok. I think I, I've seen that the song, yeah. right? Uh, do you mean a song or is is this a it's a song? It's a song. I I thought you yeah. It's a song and then it became really popular on TikTok. And now now they're convincing the artist to make an NFT out of it. And she's like, Did you did you guys listen to the song or not? I'm telling you, I don't care about your NFTs. <laughs> but but that's that's the whole it's it's a very it's a very funny thing. So I I, I, I saw it briefly. I, I didn't I, I I saw it in my feed, but I don't have the full context to say if it's overrated. Okay, so it's but in crypto boy on TikTok. In the context of you know a creative content around a concept, I think these these types of micro content, parody content, is underrated. Making fun of something, it's not doesn't matter. It's it's marketing. Either if you have good comments on it or bad comments on it, it is content for her as a creator, but also for the the space in general to get more exposure. So I'd say it's underrated. So I'm really wondering who's watching on Twitch now because somebody who watches on Twitch when your channel is on is Jager K and he's making money out of me, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually making a lot of money out of memes. <laughs> so I think that's that's a really interesting aspect. So let's remove it and let's move it from memes. Are memes underrated or overrated? Memes will for a long time still be underrated. I don't see the way how internet culture works and has evolved over the years. I don't see it being getting to that overrated threshold anytime soon. Okay. Because there's just infinite creativity in it and no one, uh, everyone loves good humor. Everyone, there's even cringe humor. That's like, it's so bad. It's good. Okay, fair enough. Okay, over under React videos, overrated or underrated? I feel React videos are properly rated. Here's why. They're definitely underrated in the sense that people don't understand how much time goes into people watching React videos. And then I'm also going to say it's a little overrated because not everybody could pull it off. Like a lot of people don't know but one of the first Sudanese YouTubers to go for 20,000 subs was actually a React channel. 
And yes, it's changed. It is no longer Mr. Simonique. You was one of the first, like years ago, when like nobody was yet on YouTube. I think you and you was the first one to really transition from mm. from, from Facebook to YouTube as a as a comedian or like comedian. He was the first one to really transition in before all the others. And when he came in, Mr. Simonik already had like twenty thousand subscribers because he was doing like these react videos, and he had really the personality that people wanted to watch react to stuff. I mean, if we would do a react video. It just wouldn't give the same level of entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's a certain personality. So it's not for everybody. I, I'd say that there's two things that come with it. There's one personality and there's other one expertise. If you're an expert in, for example, you know, opera singing or whatever, and you react to music breakdown, that's another type of react, like actual educational type of react. So right. Uh, for instance. But also the personality matters because yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the React videos that I always watch is, is laid back. So when there's a new, new music video that comes out laid back, it's one of the people that I watch and I also watch Crip. But here's the thing. So if, if you look at those two, one is much more knowledgeable about music, but the other one just has a personality that for some reason, I, I most of the time, I gravitate to watching that reaction. So that really more entertaining. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, <laughs> the, the, the react channel that I would consider being the most, uh, the most uh, enjoyable for me will most likely not be the one with the most subscribers because I don't have the same mainstream need for entertainment as others do. Mm -hmm. So that's where it really becomes part of to know like your target audience, like what kind of people do you want to connect with your brand? Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So since we're in the realm of those kind of things, challenge videos, overrated or underrated? Challenge videos. I'd say it's slightly overrated. It used to be more overrated, but just because I haven't seen any pickup in a while, I'd say it's, it's still overrated, but slightly overrated. Because I, I remember back in the day, especially on YouTube, you had this ice bucket challenge. You had all these kind of weird challenges. That the virality part of it was, you know, very short lived. So these they're still in the realm of a bit overrated for me personally. Okay, to to bring it back to what we've been talking about entrepreneurship and uh, business suit and ties. Overrated or underrated? Properly rated. And that's basically because of what you want. Again, it all comes down to what kind of clients do you want. For you. We represent. You know? Yeah. For me, it's always like, it's, it's definitely underrated in the sense that people are not aware, like how much, I'm not sure if this is a good thing, but people are unaware of how much easier it is to get a gig or land a client when you dress up in suit and tie. Like, it's insane. Like, it's when somebody suits up and goes to a client, it's like, it comes across like, you really know what you're doing. Even if you sell like complete air, like you don't sell anything, it comes over very professional. Which is worrisome, of course, because, uh, it doesn't work like that. But then again, it's overrated. If you are in a, in, in a field, a, a branch where these things don't apply, 
And especially if your contact person at, at the company is not somebody who's in that kind of uh, scene and feels like that's important, then it really doesn't matter. Like, I think it's more about being decent and coming across as, as representable than it is really being in suit at that. But for me, I have, if you come up to me with a suit and tie and everybody's just wearing like polos and jeans, it's like, sorry, I, I, we don't need to have, unless it's a gimmick. If it's a gimmick, I'm totally down. I'm totally down. And then they're like, we're selling these diamond packages, gold packages, silver packages. No, no, that's when you, no, no, no. I'm going to give you an example when suits work for me. I think it was already eight years ago. There's this Dutch band, jazz band called Brut. And Brut, they always perform in suit and tie. So every, like the whole band dresses up in suit okay, Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a part of the, the gimmick. Or and, look. They, and when we saw that, we were like, yeah, we're going to work at the hell out of this. And when they left, like at the, at the closing uh, event from the Zirnawi Jazz Festival, they were legends. Like everybody wanted to go on a picture with them. They were like absolute legends. They even made a Dutch song called, I think, Pome Paste or something like that. But they were awesome. They were like really, it was really an, an awesome band. And they were like in suit and tie. But then I'm also going to give you a part of the story. They went to Mungo. And they went to Mungo in their suit and tie. <laughs> oh. And they were playing their music. As the high school went out and high school students started walking from the school back to home and they were playing and like, they were getting no reaction whatsoever. And they were standing there sweating in the sun and like, nobody really, nobody cared. Yeah. That really environment context. In the environment, like the, the, the situation, the space, the context, it really matters. It really matters. Thanks for joining us, Joel, as we're about to close off. Yeah, I think we could call it there before we got too much over. But yeah. we we have enough to talk about for some continued entrepreneurial sessions. We, so we'll we do can, better entrepreneurial sessions. We, we can build this out actually yeah. in, into a series in a into a more structured manner as we develop these micro series within social convos for the people who joined in earlier, excluding Joel. Thank you for joining Joel. Thank you for still joining us. Been keeping up with those high posts of you. So awesome job with that. And I, I gotta say compliments to you, Joel, keeping that consistency going. I know it's, it is tremendous. It's hard and very, very respectful bow to you. And doing that consistently. With that being said, this episode will be released on the weekends and we'll be back next week with a new episode of Social Confos. We're almost getting to 69. We should do something with episode 69. <laughs> we definitely should. I have an idea. I have an idea. Let's, let's make it work. So this was Social Confos. See you back next week. Same place, same time.